Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Author Steve Almond visited Lighthouse in early December to teach two craft talks as well as a weekend intensive. Amidst these illuminating workshops, the Lighthouse community took to the grotto to celebrate Steve's new book, Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto, by attending a football brawl that featured Steve Almond and 850KOA host Justin Adams. The discussion about football with its glorious past and modern controversies is one podcast that should be listened to over and over. It's called Against Football, and it certainly has lots of arguments for football as a moral undertaking, but it's also uh, actually a celebration of football as a, this amazing game and how gripping it is, because I've been a fan for 40 years, and the last 10 of those before I went cold turkey uh, was the Oakland Raiders' last 10 years. So that's how serious a fan I am. Uh, it... It was it was it never even got hard if you know what I mean. All right. So I want to read from the preface uh, just to get and then a little tiny bit from the end and then we will throw down with our white wine spritzers and uh, uh, and then we'll just have a conversation and you guys can ask questions or throw things. So the preface of this book is called uh, "I Wasn't Out Cold But I Was Out." And I won't read it all, but I'll read a little bit of it. Among the motley artifacts taped to the walls of my office, tucked below the photo of the Bay City Rollers in snug tartan jumpsuits and the student evaluation that reads, if writing were a part of my body, I would cut it off with an exacto blade, <laughs> is a tiny yellow clipping. It's a grand total of two paragraphs snipped from a Boston Globe recap of the New England Patriots' 12 nothing win over the Miami Dolphins on December 7th. 2003. I'm almost certain I didn't watch this contest because I hate the Patriots, though oddly, if I'm honest, which I don't like being in the context of my sports viewing habits, I've watched a lot of Pats games over the years. So there's a decent chance I caught a portion of this one, maybe just the third quarter at a friend's house. <laughs> so here's the, here's the little clipping that uh, I have taped to my wall for ridiculous reasons. With 13 minutes, 50 seconds left in the game, running back Kevin Fall called in a 15-yard pass from quarterback Tom Brady. Boo his. Then got leveled by Miami safety Brock Marion, who forced a fumble and left Falk motionless on the ground. And then there's a quote. Quote, I wasn't out cold, but I was out, said Falk. <laughs> Asked if he remembered lying on the ground, he said, no, I don't, so I must have been out. I knew that something was wrong with me. I knew that, like, it wasn't normal. I didn't have that same normal feeling when I got out. I thought it was funny. That would be the mo simplest way to explain why I brought this story home and cut out the section in question and taped it to my wall. I thought it said something elemental about athletic delusion, the absurd and pitiful way players hide from the truth of their vocation that they earn ungodly sums of money and acclaim for demolishing each other. I assumed, in other words, a posture of ironic distance, which is what we Americans do to avoid the corruption of our spiritual arrangements. Ironic distance allows us to separate ourselves from the big, complicated moral systems around us, political, religious, familial, to sit in judgment of others rather than ourselves. But here's the thing. You can run from your own subtext for only so long. 
Those spray-tanned lunatics we happily revile are merely turned-out versions of our private selves, the whores we hide from public view. What I mean is that there's a deeper reason I cut those paragraphs out of the paper a dozen years ago and carry that little square of newsprint with me through three different moves, each time affixing it to a spot right over my desk. I told myself it was just a macabre little talisman, a window into the dissonant psyches of famous barbarians. Then, a few months ago, around the time my own mother suffered an acute and terrifying insult to her brain, the truth landed. The passage wasn't about Falk and his brethren. It was about me. It was about the 40 years I'd spent as an ardent football fan, about my refusal to face the complicity of my own joy in seeing men like Kevin Falk concussed. Quote, I knew that something was wrong with me. Um, and I'll skip ahead a little bit. The writing is just dazzling, but I've got to skip it. <laughs> This little book is a manifesto. Its job is to be full of obnoxious opinions. For example, I happen to believe that our allegiance to football legitimizes and even fosters within us a tolerance for violence, greed, racism, and homophobia. I recognize that voicing these opinions will cause many fans to write off whatever else I might have to say on the subject as a load of horse shit shoveled by someone who's probably wearing a French sailor's suit and whistling the Soviet national anthem. which, of course, I do all the time at home. Before you do so, let me reiterate, I am one of you. If we ever have the awkward pleasure of meeting, we can, rather than debating my obnoxious opinions about football, happily muse over any of the hundreds of NFL players, past and present, whose names and career paths and highlight reels I have pathetically, unintentionally, and yet lovingly filed away in my hippocampal hard drive, so please, before you set, oh, and, and then I go on to say, oh, i got to read this because the Raiders are having such an awesome year, as I understand. Actually, uh, if I may, your, yes. your prediction is, once they hear yes, it. Yes, there you go. Yeah, it's he's actually over his prediction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chances are I know all about your favorite team, what they did last year and last decade, and whom they drafted, at least in the first round, and where they, they're predicted to finish in their division, a subject I would prefer to take up, given the alternative, which would be to discuss my team, the wretched and moribund Oakland Raiders, who will finish this season and mark my words, no better than 3 and 13. It is like I had a crystal ball. (laughs) So please, before you set this book down or quietly remit it to the poor soul in your life who who you thought it might make an interesting gift for, please consider one final obnoxious opinion. I happen to believe football in its exalted moments is not just a sport, but a lovely and intricate form of art. Mostly, this book is a personal attempt to connect the two disparate synapses that fire in my brain when I hear the word football, the one that calls out, who's playing, what channel, and the one that murmurs, shame on you. My hope is to honor the ethical complexities and the allure of the game. I'm trying to see football for what it truly is. What does it mean that the most popular and unifying form of entertainment in America in 2014 features giant muscled men, mostly African-American, engaged in a sport that causes many of them to suffer brain damage? What does it mean that our society has transmuted the intuitive physical joys of childhood, run, leap, throw, tackle, into a corporatized form of simulated combat that a collision sport has become the leading signifier of our institutions of higher learning and the undisputed champ of our colossal athletic industrial complex. Quote, I knew that, like, it wasn't normal. So what was it? 
right, so that's just the preface, and I just want to read the very end of the book before we get to a brawling, which is more or less a complete and abject surrender. Yeah, yeah, for you. Um, for me, for awesome. me, of yeah. course. Yeah. So, not for you, but for me. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Maybe the way to think of football is as a kind of refuge. Maybe it's so popular because it's the one huge cultural space where we can safely indulge all the shit we haven't worked out yet as a people. Our lust for violence, our racial neuroses, our yearning for patriarchal dominion, our sexual hang-ups. It's the place where men get to be boys before the age of reason, before the age of guilt. But I keep thinking also about this young woman I met the other night who found out I was writing a book about football and got very excited and told me she was a huge fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, that she had an Eagles hat in her bag. Did I want to see it? She told me football was what kept her connected to her hometown and to her dad, especially, quote, every weekend he'd go hunting for deer and we'd make venison burgers and we'd watch the Eagles game. That was our thing. Her face was shining with love. What's your book about anyway, she said. So I did that thing where I marched out all my arguments which were supposed to make me feel righteous, but I looked at this young woman, at her sad eyes, and all I felt was petty and cruel. The Philadelphia Eagles had given her something precious to share with her father. What right did I have to shit on that? So I want to say to her and to you, I'm sorry. The point of this book isn't to shit on your happiness. It isn't to win some cultural argument. Let's make it larger than that. Let's make it an honest conversation between ourselves and within ourselves about why we come to football, about why we need a beautiful, savage game to feel fully alive, to feel united, and to love the people we love. So I say that not because I don't have a lot of obnoxious uh, and forceful opinions that I think Justin will disagree with at least some of them or feel that they're uh, a little bit distorted, but because uh, the book is not really against football. It's much more what is football. Um, and I wanted to actually call it this eager violence of the heart, which is now just the name of one of the chapters. But for sort of marketing reasons, they wanted to call the book against football to sort of send the message, wow, this guy's really taken on football. Yeah, and to offend guys like me. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Me to initiate uh, events yeah. like this one where yeah. we could sit around drinking white wine brawling. Exactly. I couldn't okay. wait. Well, let me take another sip, by the way. Yeah. So uh, I, I actually have a question for you, which is what was your, re I mean, I don't know whether you got through the whole book, but I, I imagine you did because it was so brilliant, but uh, <laughs> w w were there things in it that you felt uh, as a player, as somebody who has been inside of, of uh, a huddle and inside the practices and inside the experience, because I'm really writing as a passionate fan, that felt either distorted or maybe were missing something? There, there's a lot of different things that I've seen within um, the book, and I, and I have not finished it yet, but I, I will say this. Uh, and this will be probably the last credit because we have to brawl. But I will say this. Uh, it, it has brought in a deeper love for me back in reading just reading just your book um, and the and majority that I've read so far. Um, there's a lot of different things that I've learned and I looked at. And oh, go, go ahead. Give, give them a hand. Yeah, this is very good writing. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely say that. Um, this is a setup. Yeah, it is. 
you have to throw in that fastball, just please. The, one of the things about uh, not only your book, but, but in football in general, there are so many different just layers and areas. Um, I'll go at the beginning. When you talk about the history, a lot of individuals don't understand the history of football. And honestly, before I read it, neither did I fully know. Um, I knew that um, if it wasn't for the forward pass, that we wouldn't have the game today. Um, but Theodore uh, Roosevelt, if I'm uh, correct, was the president who actually initiated that, wanted to have that change in the game to say, hey, let's have more forward passes in order such so that you literally don't have a brawl like up front. Like you have like all these massive men just hitting each other, and that's it. It's like rugby with no substance. It's pointless. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of different changes and everything that did go to the game. Um, one of the things that did get me... Um, and I don't know if you've touched on it yet again, I haven't finished it, but um, football is a very, um, very weird game in the sense of um, a lot of times of personnel-wise. Um, I was reading a New York Times article a couple of years ago, and this guy had um, a point, I believe it's William Roden, um, a very, very great writer, and he said, what is the one position that you think, like, and I hate when people say, you know, racist position, whatever, what's the one position you would never think of of a guy playing, per se? And for the longest, it used to be, hey, a black quarterback. Why? Because of, hey, does he have the smarts and things like that? But actually, if you look at the game today, you tell me if you see a white cornerback, a white DB. You don't see that. Right. And or Jason Seahorn. The last one, Jason Seahorn, is the last one I can recall. Um, Julian Edelman, who is a wide receiver now, um, he played a little bit of DB um, in AFC Championship a couple of years ago. Actually, 2012, I could recall. But why don't you see that? So it's a lot of our minds thinking, well, he's not fast enough, he's not quick enough, not nimble enough in order to be at that position. And unfortunately, that's something that is held on very firmly within coaches, is that you know, coaches and you know, personnel, for some reason, that is something that is held on to is, you know, well, this guy is, he's pretty fast, he's pretty good. Let's put him at safety, not at cornerback, right? Like Jordy Nelson, for example, is like an anomaly, right? A guy who's fast, big, can catch the football, and has, split, and has amazing speed. And it's like, well, he can't be doing that as a, a wide receiver going up against these black defensive backs, you know? But that's kind of the nonsense that we do push out into the, or that does come out from the game of football, so. Well, so uh, one thing I always wonder about, um, and one thing that, that reading, for instance, um, Nate Jackson has a wonderful memoir, the former um, Broncos tight end, and part of what the book is trying to interrogate is not why you would decide to play football as a player. That, to me, is completely apparent as somebody who was a decent level soccer, you know, played a little bit of soccer at co the college level. Even at that low a level, it was obvious that it's an incredibly powerful experience. It's exhilarating. Even people who play in high school still think back to that experience, mm -hmm. especially with football, because you are at risk in a way that you're not with other sports. Your body and your health and your pride, therefore, and your courage, the question of courage is really at risk. I understand completely why a player would decide to not think about the health risks and say, this is who I am and what I want to do, and this is my brotherhood, right? What the book is interested in interrogating is why, as fans, do we agree to see it only as a form of entertainment rather than as a moral undertaking? That's the decision that I'm especially interested in. But one thing I wonder about with players is to what extent, as you moved up, moving from a good high school player then to the college ranks and then 
CU, which is a really good program. We were at the time right. I played. Okay. Don't, come on, we were there. But here's the question I have for you. The way I understand it, and you can disabuse me of this, is that as you get further up the chain, you really have to change your attitude and to some extent suppress your empathy in order to be effective as a player, especially defensively, but also any, any, to even exist and thrive at that level of competition. You cannot be thinking too much about the fact that you're hitting another human being and it could hurt them or you. So let, let me, uh, a great story that I had when I played, um, and this was in uh, one of the practices that we had, and this will bring in all um, to your point, Steve. Um, you know, playing tight end, blocking a very good defensive end, and we were doing what we call a tag block, and a tag block is a double team. And you'll see that a lot. You see kind of, you know, you know, offensive tackle, offensive guard, they will, you know, double team, you know, a defensive lineman, you know, usually tackle or end, and then move up to the linebacker. My job was, okay, you're supposed to take your inside arm, and I was on the left side of the, of the formation, so you take your right hand and you shove it into the guy's chest. Let's just call it what it is, as hard as I could. And the other guy, your tackle, he will do the same. Well, I must have felt real strong that day. I was eating my Wheaties, by the way. So I just, you know, we just threw this guy down on the ground, and I moved up to the next level, and we got, you know, the linebacker. Great play. You know, we're getting back and going to huddle. Well, as I'm walking back, you know, you hear the end screaming. Well, we, he popped his elbow. Yeah. Somehow that happened, he just popped his elbow. Dislocated. Dislocated his elbow. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, he dislocated his elbow. Okay, you know, where's the trainers at? You know, we're going to have to give some time to, you know, take care of this guy. Well, the coaches, understanding that, you know, there's a time clock on the day and we have so much time in practice, they said, all right, move it up 30 yards. So we all went up 30 yards. The guy is literally 30 yards behind us. Writhing and we in continue pain. Writhing in pain. Right. The trainers are there and we continue practicing. You know, I've been many times where there has been scrimmages, games where, you know, somebody gets hurt, they bring the ambulance out. And, you know, they're taking care of the guy. They have to put him on a stretcher and everything. And then, you know, they will him off. You say a prayer and then it's like, okay, go right back at it. Right. So that to me is one of the interesting kind of interstitial moments. One of the first things I write about in the book um, as, a, as a kid, as an 11-year-old, I saw... Um, you know, the Daryl Stingley play back in 1977, where uh, my favorite team, the Oakland Raiders, who were once very good, uh, <laughs> I will remind you, but part of the nature of their goodness was that they were tough and they were remorseless about uh, about their play. And Jack Tatum was really the poster boy of that, this cornerback who was called the assassin and who basically was absolutely vicious in his hits and completely without remorse or any shame. That was his job, was to put you on the ground. And there was a preseason game, and I remember watching it, where uh, Daryl Stingley, one of the best wide receivers in the league, came across the middle preseason game and the quarterback, Steve Grogan, for the Patriots, threw a ball that really even wasn't even within his reach. And Stingley laid out for it like every great athlete is going to. You're just going to try to catch it. doesn't matter whether it's in practice or where it is. That's what your instinct is. And Tatum laid a hit on him. And uh, unbeknownst to those of us who were watching, uh, two of Stingley's vertebrae were crushed. And he fell to the ground. Now, what you could see as a fan was that he had fallen wrong. And I mean by that, that you could see that he wasn't moving and that his body was in a natural position. 
Uh, and there is the, always in football, happens in other sports as well, but it's especially true of football, which is a collision sport. Um, there is that weird moment where the suddenly the form of entertainment that you've w- been watching becomes the brutality and the danger of it becomes overt and you can't hide it from yourself. And there's a moment of silence. And with Daryl Stingley, for me as an 11 year old, I knew instinctually something was wrong. And I knew that Jack Tatum had delivered this big hit. And I was actually kind of happy because that's what, that's the way you feel when you're really a fan. Part of that woo for CU is like, yeah, if they have an opportunity to take the opposing quarterback down and put them out of the game, that's good for your team. That's, those are really the rules of football. You can't soft pedal that or say, well, I just watch for the graceful athletic plays. <laughs> the reason there are parabolic mics on the sidelines and that they show the replays of these plays over and over again is because they know that that's partly what we're watching for. Um, so my fear at age 11 was they're going to have to stop playing football. I literally remembered thinking, holy shit, they can't keep playing a sport where somebody gets paralyzed right in front of you. And my fear wasn't, I am complicit in this as a fan and therefore a sponsor of this game. Like, I really need to look at my own moral code. It was much more basic. What will I do without the Raiders? What will I do if they don't, you know, if the, because as a kid, you think there's this containing adult world that will respond morally to something that's clearly very troubling, it, a player being paralyzed. If, if I may, please hold that point. Just, just to accentuate your point, uh, Ray Lewis, I remember him saying during, I believe it was 2011, when there was the um, lockout. Mm-hmm. And they said, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that the lockout wouldn't happen the whole season because people wouldn't know what to do on Sundays. Right. So, I mean, it, and to be honest... If you look at your schedule tomorrow, everyone in here knows what time the Broncos play. Be honest. For the most part. If you don't know, you will be forced to know what time the Broncos are. 205. But you will know what time they play. So, I mean, just be honest. Go ahead. And, 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 but that's a good point for a number of different reasons. Even if you are not a fan of the game, you probably watch the Super Bowl. Or have watched a Super Bowl. One thing that's interesting about football is that it's very normal in this culture. We really just accept that the game is kind of a national sport. And part of what I'm trying to unpack in discussing the history of the game is why it scratches the American itches so powerfully. And in a very different way from any other sport. It has incredible strategic density. It's got incredible specialization of positions. It's the only game you can look at where there's got to be like seven managers on site, if you think about it. And it's also a very brutal and public meritocracy. It's capitalism on steroids. It is the ecosystem in which we all operate accentuated. And um, there is also something, I think, in the American spirit that feels the the way that the historian Richard Slotkin puts it is that Americans uh, uh, have developed a, a pattern in which we regenerate our spirit through violence. That's what the colonial war was about. That's what the frontier was about. Right. Denver doesn't really exist in the way that it does today if there wasn't this Western expansion. And that the, the way that narrative plays out in, in the iconography of Westerns and so forth is really if you don't clean it up and if you boil away all the romance, it's a genocide. It's it's cowboys killing Indians and the federal army taking the Plains Indians out. 
right? It's Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee and the Trail of Tears. That is something that's very primally in America, American culture, and it's part of the reason why this game in particular is the central American game, as opposed to other countries where they're just not that into it. I mean, the NFL is trying to make football a big game in Europe, but Europeans really actually like soccer more. Or, or or cricket or whatever. Just tell Roger Goodell that, please. Right. Please let him know that, please. No, I mean, and, and another point, too, is it's also a form of, of manhood. Um, and, and I'll say this, um, everyone here. At what day did you become a man? Exactly. Because, no, I mean, seriously, and you, you can laugh about it, but there, there's a seriousness to that question because in American culture, we don't have that. We don't have something where right. it's like, a, hey, this is your day that you have became a man. And so for, you know, whether it's African-American culture like myself, these are one of the days or one of the times that you can say, I became a man when I got up off the field or I became a man when I made this play. Or when I went back on the field. Or when I went back on the field. And so that's where it's kind of, it's filling in a void. It's filling in a gap that we're not having at home anymore. Um, so uh, I want to read one little uh, passage of, of the book uh, just because I want to emphasize the, the idea that we think of football, we don't really think twice about it. But one of the things that's interesting is when you think about somebody else from outside of American culture looking at football and what they see. I don't know if you've gotten to this part of the book, but I want your reaction to it. It's from a... Um, it's from a chapter called The Love Song of Richie Incognito. Mm. <laughs> um, or the diss that just repeats. <laughs> and for those, of you who, um, for those of you who don't know who Richie Incognito is, he's the uh, Miami Dolphins offensive lineman who uh, was uh, uh, found to be bullying one of his fellow uh, linemen, Jonathan Martin. And there was a lot of news about it. And, and really, it's a little bit like the Star Report. When you read the Wells Report, which was compiled to examine this, what's fascinating is, is uh, not so much that Incognito was using all these racial epithets, uh, but that he seemed to be in love with Jonathan Martin. And I mean that, I don't mean that he was in love and he wanted to have sex with Jonathan Martin. I mean that the person that he was the closest to in the world was Jonathan Martin. They exchanged, I think it was 13,000 uh, text messages in the space of 14 months, something like 40 a day, discussing the most intimate aspects of their life. Uh, it's a little bit like thinking about Achilles and Patroclus. It really is. In, in warrior culture, I mean, you, you can speak to this, Justin. The, the, when you play a sport where your body is at risk and you go out on the field, and that's a real thing, you establish a closeness, like soldiers, you establish a closeness and an intimacy with your brothers who you're playing alongside and, and incurring that risk with that is different from any other relationship that you have. Would you agree with that? I would say it's on to the point of what people try to do with you at happy hour. It's kind of the um, illustration I would use. At happy hour, we're away from the job. We're trying to build a relationship, get closer. And it's kind of interesting because you're spending eight hours with this person anyway. 
I don't know how you don't build a relationship with somebody you spend eight hours with, but it's what you try to foster. You're trying to create this relationship. Where in football, when your life's on the line, or in you know, I, I've never been to the military, so but in anything like that, when you're like, hey, you're my brother, and we have to fight together in order to get this done. Yeah, that's where you get that relationship. You get extremely close uh, very quickly because hey, we have a job to do. We have if we don't get that done, then you know we lose the game, we lose the battle. But think about it this way. It's it's not just, and you can speak to this as a serious player, it's not just that you're on the field together. When you're a serious football player, you have created a world in which you eat, bathe, study, blow off steam, go to whatever nightclub, whatever it is, all with, that, with your teammates. Yeah, you see each other naked. Which right. is, I mean, let's just be honest. That is the... Right. I remember the first time I was at CU, and I'm in the locker room, and a guy, like, has his towel on, but, like, a huge, huge lineman, and he has his towel on, and he's, like, has one leg up on, like, the ledge and everything, and he's looking at me, and I'm like, bro, you're... I understand we're talking about a play, but you're naked right now. I'm like, I don't... <laughs> so, I mean, it's... But it gets to the point where you are fully exposed in every way. That's right. You're fully, right. fully exposed. And there's th- nothing that's hidden. That's right. And th- now that's part of the reason that people um, gave Jonathan Vilma a hard time about his objection to Michael Sam or his squeamishes because they live outside that culture and they don't understand this isn't any other workplace. This is a workplace where the intimacy is absolutely complete. Um, and you, it's a, really kind of a motherless world but where you do everything with other players. Um, so I don't mean everything, but you know what I mean. All right. So, 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 here's, so in the context of that, here's a little passage. I once made the mistake of watching a football game with an Italian woman who was studying medieval gender roles <laughs> and with whom, rather unimaginatively, I hope to have sex. It was the sort of mistake one makes in one's 20s before one has developed a proper appreciation for the virtues of compartmentalization. Quote, they are spending most times hugging, Elena observed. Those are blocks, I said. Then at the end, they make a big pile on the ground and grind each other. There's no grinding, I said. Then they spank the others on the behind. It's a gay ritual. I don't think so, I said. But look, before each time, the skinny one, the sex leader, the quarterback. He makes all the big boys bend over. Then he chooses his favorite and comes up behind the lucky one and makes a pantomime of sodomy. No, I said. No, no, no. That's the snap. It's how the play starts. And the quarterback gets the ball from one guy, the center. It's not a choice. You can't just come up to, like, the tight end. (laughs) Elena looked at me for several complicated European seconds. The what? (laughs) What's your reaction to that? Helped me out a lot in college, by the way. What do you play? I play the tight end. Oh, really? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) Come here, girl. Come here. But one of the things that I'm interested in exploring in that chapter is the way in which not just players, but also male fans have to consume football in order to purchase the right in this culture to be intimate with other men without falling under the suspicion of being gay. I think that is part of what's happening. Like when I'm, 
moving through the world and I'm in a situation with another man, there's immediately a weird anxiety between us that's kind of like, so you're like a man, so you're having sex with women, right? You don't have, you're not looking at me in some odd, funny way. You're not from the world of gay people. And this is really how heterosexual men think if you strip away all the PC-ness. And so one of the ways you establish that is you say, you see the Bronx, you see Bucks game? Peyton Manning, I'll tell you what, came back from that surgery. That's how you establish your bona fides. It's a little coded message that says, I am safely in the world of the heterosexual. Would you agree with that? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) as a tight end. This conversation could go in so many waves right now, so many roads. Um, Wow. Um, To establish where you're at of of a male bond immediately, a lot of times you go to sports. It's the one easy common denominator that people can go to. And a lot of times, um, through conversation, a lot of guys can't come up with something else. Can't come up with something unique. But not benign conversation, honestly. Can't come up with anything else. So that is kind of the common denominator. Sports. You... Broncos, Peyton, right. fan, you, yes, okay, right. cool. And, and, and you know, uh, I'm not, like, I, I wrote this book and have tried to look at it and take it apart, but I am very much a part of sports culture and fan culture. I just watched a game the other night of my insanely awesome Golden State Warriors, and it was like, that is how my neighbor and I, who have a lot of stuff that we really need to process and talk about, <laughs> like, he's got two kids, I've got three kids, our wives just completely, like, we are just in, we need each other. We need to, like, talk and, like, hug and, and you know, I'm, comfort I'm one another. I'm here for Thank you, too. Thank you. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> and, um, but I don't say to him, hey, I'd love to grab lunch with you. I've got some stuff on my mind. What I say is, hey, is there a game we can watch? You, you think about when you guys watch the game tomorrow, it, football is kind of brilliant, not just because it works so brilliantly on TV, but also because there's really about 17 minutes of actual play. And then the rest is replays and commercials. But that time actually winds up being crucial. It's time that men can actually socialize and relate safely. It's sanctioned space where you can kind of catch up. And that's what I do with my male friends, I'm ashamed to say. It's like I haven't reached the point where I could just say, let's grab a salad and shop and talk. (laughs) (laughs) For goodness sake, think about it. As a fan, for men, it's the one time you actually hug when something good happens. They score a touchdown. I don't know you, and I just gave you a hug. Any other time, that is not appropriate. I mean, seriously, when you think about masculinity, that is not appropriate. I, I can't walk up to you and be like, hey, bro, bam, right on the behind. Like, right. that is not appropriate. But in <laughs> fandom and in sports, <laughs> right. and specifically football, that right. is appropriate. Right. right. Um, and, and interestingly, if you think about it, I think about this with boxing and football. Because the risk is so much greater, you know, if you really think about, for instance, a sport where it's much more overt, like boxing, those guys are nearly naked, and they're trying to knock one another senseless, and yet they are in, involved in a deeply intimate activity. They're spilling blood on one another. At the end of any fight, they hug one another. It's actually, oddly enough, they're intensely intimate, physically intimate with one another. They're grunting. They're panting. They are, uh, their, their hearts are racing. What does that sound like? 
you know. And I, I'm not trying to suggest, I'm just saying I think that there's so much more going on when you're sitting there just thinking you're watching a football game and consuming entertainment, right? There's so many more levels where important emotional and psychological stuff is being played out but not acknowledged, right? All right, let's, uh, should we open it up to sure, questions I mean, and comments? I, yeah. I, I do want to say one thing, though, on that point sure. that is screaming out to me is that I don't think individuals or people understand um, how much, and I, I guess I'm on a rant on masculinity that today. Maybe it's just, maybe it's honestly showing a little bit of my faults, right, from, after, after, from being in the game and after the game, where a lot of what I judge myself is based off of, man, how do I look in the mirror? Have I lifted today? Have I ran today? How does my abs look? Me too. Me too. You, you, can you tell. see I mean, it. I mean, it's, this body doesn't just happen. Hey. <laughs> a lot of time in the gym. <laughs> but, but really, it, 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 it's... A lot of time at the keyboard. <laughs> what? Oh. oh. Um, <laughs> the finger. Oh, right. But it really does. It, it really, like, shapes what you think of yourself as a man. I'm... I'm not important unless if I'm physically dominating over somebody else, or if I'm physically dominant, or if I have a dominant stature. And that's, that's something you gotta grapple with. I mean, if you're being taught that from young, that the faster you run is, is how important you are, or the stronger you are, that you know, place of you know, and how important you will be in society, and not by your smarts, about how much you read or by how much you could think on your own, which thinking, if you really look at it, is, is going away, honestly. I mean, a lot of people don't think for themselves. You allow other people to think for them. Um, that's, that's the struggles and everything that are, that are out there that we have. Yeah, so th I'll say one quick thing, because that uh, jibes with a lot of what I'm trying to get at in, uh, against football. Great fight, by the way. Yes. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Yes. We're just mixing it up. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a dumb point, what he just said. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the, the, to me, and I really am interested to get your reaction, is one of the most pernicious sort of rationalizations. When you're a football fan, but you're a person who considers yourself of conscience, you've got a whole set of rationalizations and excuses that you have to carry around in order to justify watching the game. And I know that because I did that for 40 years. And one of them is, hey, the players get played, paid tons of money. It's their choice. They're adults. Don't look at me as a fan and question the morality of that decision. Look at the players. That's don't, don't look at what I'm doing as a sponsor of the game. The central one, or the one to me that's the most um, upsetting or pernicious, is the idea that certain kids, the only path that this culture provides for certain kids is football. That is their path to economic salvation, self-realization, and power in the culture. And using the coded language of our culture, what we mean by certain kids is poor kids and kids from economically vulnerable communities and often kids of color, right? It's not some coincidence that two-thirds of the NFL players are African-American or that 80% of the players in the SEC are African-American, where the vast majority of fans are white. But the majority of the coaches are white. Correct. The majority of the, I want to say the majority of the owners, all the owners are white. Right. So, I mean, you right. take that however you want. Right. Uh, even Honestly. Right. You, no, really. Right. I mean, take that at a, at a historical point, you look at that however you want. And or even look at the use, uh, even look at the word owner and, 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 and what it has meant hi historically. So, w w one of the things that, um, 
that, that is so pernicious about that line is, is partly what Justice suggested. If you really look at the, um, what we're valuing for those kids, what we're saying is the following. You, we will rescue you. We will give you an education, and we will at least pretend to care about that education. But you have to entertain us by playing a beautiful, intricate, strategically dense, but ultimately violent game. Violent and dangerous game. And ultimately, and this is where I really want to get your reaction, part of what upsets me about recruiting is that we all, as fans, consent to a lie, which is that we care about whether the players get an education and that the university cares about that and that the fans care about that and that's the basis of the student-athlete system. What we really care about is that they're ready to play on Saturday. And it would be great. It would be fabulous. It would make us feel warm and happy for a second if we could also say, hey, those guys got an education and they wouldn't have otherwise. But isn't that essentially saying that what matters about somebody isn't the content of their character? It isn't the development of their moral system. It isn't the development of their minds and their, their uh, uh, empathy and their intellectual latitude and curiosity. What matters for us, the fans who support the system of college football, is that they can play football great and entertain us, that they're really good at entertaining us on Saturday or Sunday. Um, that is... And furthermore, only one out of 500 high school players, seniors, is going to make it to the pros. And they're going to spend three and a half years in the pros. And they're probably going to be broke a few years after that. But because the game requires so much, you can't just casually play it. I mean, you walked on, but you are the exception to the rule. Most people who are playing at the high, highest levels in high school and then in college they're devoting 40 or more hours a week to football. And that means that you're not devoting that time to the things that would probably serve you better in the long run, right? Uh, which would be like, I don't know, uh, you know, t majoring in business or whatever it is, finding a way to survive past the point that you're going to retire from football or not make it at the pro level. Yeah, a lot of things we kind of throw away because we, number one, as you alluded to earlier, because they make so much money, we don't think about. Um, so let me go backwards, and I'll come back to a point that I wanted to make earlier about college football. When we look at a player who's retiring, there's only so many Peyton Mannings out there. There's only so many Champ Baileys who are able to make truly millions upon millions of dollars and have something in the bank and to live off of that. Um, I talked to a former player, and he told me that if you have $2 million in the bank after your playing career is over, you should consider yourself lucky. Think about that for a moment. Out of all these numbers that get thrown out, if you only have $2 million in the bank, consider yourself lucky. Now, we don't talk about the taxes, right? When you see this huge contract, right? Like, um, let's go with J.J. Watt. He signed a huge contract, $100 million contract. Never pay attention to that portion when they say that. It doesn't matter how high, how much money that contract is. What's important is what's guaranteed. And based off of what's guaranteed, then you start subtracting what gets taken away from taxes. Then you start subtracting what gets taken away just for you, you got to live. Then you subtract from family. Then you subtract from bad habits and all those sort of things. And then you have to think about this also. After the game, there are individuals who are right. addicted on pain pills and things like that because that's the way you got through. 
Um, one guy who's a very famous guy, Tony Romo right now, reading articles about him having to take pain pills and how he had to get shots in his back in order to play, like that's a guy who really is going to need some help once it's done because you can get addicted to that. Brett Favre, a great quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL, has said and stated he had an addiction to pain pills. And a lot of people do. It, to me, that's one of the things that always kills me when I hear people talk about steroids. You know, we can't we can't have HGH and all these other things, but you could shoot me with something to make my body numb, and I could play on that. Right. Like, let's let's just call it what it is. If you're going to let me play the sport, let me be as big, gargantuan, and ridiculous as possible. Like, no seriously, let me be that way because in a while it's going to hurt. The body is going to break down, and I'm going to have pain afterwards after the game is all said and done. Right. I do want to go over one thing, um, and it hit me as I was reading your book. That's why I was like, man, i got to get back to reading more. Um, ah, this is so hard for me to say, but it's, it's a harsh reality. There's kind of an affirmative action clause to playing football um, on the collegiate level. And when you say two-thirds, um, or was it 80% in the SEC are black? Right. So let's say if you're an individual who didn't play football, and you got onto campus, a lot of times what you will hear is, you know, conversations surrounding, oh, wow, how, you got here because of, do you play football? Do you play football? When I, was, when I was on campus, honestly, a lot of times I, the first things people would say is, hey, you play football, right? And when I played, I was like, yeah, you're right, I do. It's more of a pride thing. You're right, you see my stature. When I gave up the game, though, and I put my cleats away, and I continued to get that, I started to understand that, no, I don't play Wait a minute, are you saying the only reason why I'm here isn't because of my intellect, but because of my athletic ability? And if it wasn't for that, I shouldn't have the privilege of being here? That's one thing that's being said. Number two, um, Richard Sermon said something very interesting. Now, I know he says a lot of things, man. But he's a very intelligent individual. Somebody came and said on an article, they said, if, um, you know, will the game of football ever be closed away? Will it ever be thrown away? With all these concussions and everything, do you think it will ever shut down? He said, no, because more people within the inner city will just have more opportunities to play. What you have to understand about a lot of African-American culture, especially in economics, is that a lot of times we start at zero or we start at a deficit. It's not being in a place where I'm saying we are hurting or the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the, um, I can't think of, I think, can't, can't think of the word, unfortunately, but uh, um, is that in economics, we don't have something where we build upon, okay? What I mean by that is, when your parents passed and they gave you some finances, they gave you, whether it's some land, some equity, something that you could build upon that on, you could build wealth upon, right? You have that opportunity. And I'm not saying that's for all whites, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that's, that's something you could build upon. For the, a lot of African-American culture is that you are starting at zero, so you play in football, and your drive is to be able to start to make some wealth. So when you play in football and you're making millions of dollars, that is your chance to finally make some wealth. And, and in addition to that, one, the chapter that deals with um, race is called The Blind Spot. So there are two, two things to, um, that I was thinking as you were saying this. One is that not only are you not starting at zero, you're starting at less than zero. Because in Liberty City, if you are, uh, in, I spent a year writing a long story. It was mostly just trying to write what life was like in this one housing development, which they called the Canyon, the James Scott Homes. And there was a famous um, football player, wide receiver, who came back and 
actually uh, like would coach kids, but he wouldn't coach any kid over the age of nine because he said at that point, if they haven't gotten the, in discipline, th I'm not going to even deal with that. That was how quickly he, a compassionate guy, wanted to you know help these guys and help them get good at football and develop even their discipline and perseverance and the rest of it. Uh, he said, no, I can't. Because he recognized that they did not have a home life that usually had two parents. Most of the kids I was hanging out with, they had a guardian who was probably an auntie, maybe a mom. Um, and for them, they, had, they were a problem, a discipline problem in a school that was incredibly overcrowded and that had, uh, where, they, where the teachers had to focus on the kids who were teachable. And they had two options. They could either get really good at football or go into the drug trade. And um, that is what we consent to as a culture. And part of the reason that I'm so troubled by this uh, golden ticket idea of, well, hey, it's the only way out for certain kids, is that we're, say we're consenting to an arrangement where we don't address the fundamental sources of economic inequality and the inequality of opportunity. We consent to that and say, well, they've got football. And people in the Scott Homes were incredibly intensely attached to football. And there would be fights and gunplay on the sidelines about how much a nine-year-old kid was playing, partly because that was the path out. And that's all of our responsibility, actually. We consent to that arrangement. The book, The Blind Side, by uh, Michael Lewis is a very interesting book. And it's two books in one. The first book is a Horatio Alger story about how a poor African-American kid uh, uh, found a way to succeed in the world and become an NFL player. And we can see him on TV. And by the way, those are the people we see are the winners. It's like America. We only see the top 1% of everything. We don't see everybody else. We just see the Peyton Mannings and Michael Ors. But Michael Orr asks a fascinating question in that book. He says to his white adoptive mother, basically, if I had just been some kid, who wasn't 6'7 and 320, and I was just going to be flipping burgers the rest of my life, would you have taken an interest in me and adopted me? He is saying to her, what is the nature of your interest in me? And that's what I think the book is asking people to ask. What is the nature of our interest? Do we really care about anything beyond them entertaining us at this game that is amazingly and wildly entertaining, but that has almost nothing to do with it? it it's incredibly complicated to play. You have to be real smart to play at a high level. Uh, and you have to study and, I mean, forget it. It's like baseball. They do not have a playbook that looks like that. My, my playbook, uh, no joke, was I still have it. It's this thick. And just going through it, I mean... If you don't mind. So sure. when, when you look at preparation for a game, number one, this is why I'm 100% against Thursday night football. When you look at preparation for a game, first of all, it's, it's, I don't think it's a good product. That's just me. I'm just being honest. It's not in the NFL. And it, it doesn't help out your body. You need time to heal, really, to get back together. All right, so you need a practice alone just to go over red zone offense, and that's from the 20 into the goal line. Different plays different formations, if they give you this look, the defense, what do we do here? Okay, a lot of times I have what's called a side adjustment. If the safety moves one way, then my route changes. If the safety stays one way, my route stays the same. 
There's so many different things you have to think of on the fly as you're going at full speed. Um, another thing is that you know you have to think of a third and down and ten. What do I do here? It's we got the ball, we have the lead with about four minutes to go. What are we doing at this time here? There's so many different things that you need the preparation for that you, know, you don't usually get. Right, you don't usually understand. Here's the catch: is that that is so incredibly complex and specialized, but it doesn't really transfer to a life after football. You've made obviously a very successful, you know, uh, uh, transition into I'm trying. working as a journalist. Still so got work. But would you <laughs> would you agree that 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 you have had an unusually successful transition into post football life? I wouldn't. Oh, wow, um, it's tough um, because uh, this is actually getting a little more deeper. But it's it's an. I would say unusual because I knew when I went to see you, I went for journalism, not for football. Okay. And I had. But was that true teams. of your teammates? There's there's a lot of guys I know that are still holding on. I mean, there are some guys who play college ball who are just dominating at the next level. I mean, a lot of CEOs, a lot of great individuals, a lot of you know politicians who come out played football. There's a lot of great things among with that being said, which should be put out more. There's a lot. I know um, a kicker who actually is an astronaut. He like he would just kick and then run around. I'm like yeah, you could kick and get out of here because who <laughs> who likes kickers anyway? Unless you need them. But there are those guys though who do say this is my meal ticket. This is it. I cannot go back into my hometown without a couple million dollars. I can't go back. So this is it. And, and partly because they've come out of that hometown with incredible expectations. They were the person who made it. And the expectation is that... Not only expectations, but everybody knew who you were. Everybody knew you. It's, it's, I put it this way. When was the last time you seen somebody build a stadium for a straight-A student? When was the last time you seen breaking news? We have five straight A students that we're looking at right here. This Nobel Peace winner, you know, this Nobel Prize winner. You never see that. Never do. But you will see breaking Super Bowl winner. You will see breaking the Broncos have done this, that, and the other, or injury has happened or something like that. You know. Take that. All right, so we, we, we could we could talk all night. But uh, do you guys have questions or things that you want to bring up and yeah. I have a responsibility to Steve to teach him whatever he needs to know in order for him to get to his next step. 
and that's what it is. I mean, to a T. That's that's what it has to be. And if we have that attitude, you know, in the Bible it talks about, uh, you know, love God and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. One of the biggest struggles is, man, we really struggle loving our neighbor. Just call it what it is. So if if we do become individuals who say you don't know finances, because honestly, in public school system, do they really teach you how to balance a checkbook? You have this piece of plastic, what you get to college. So once I got to see you, I had all these credit cards, and I was like, man, for a slice of, for a big thing of blackjack pizza, I could get this for free? <laughs> like, right. yes, I'm going to sign up with my fake name right here. Here it is, you know? But, but I mean, nobody learns about the literacy, financial literacy, about different things within education, without your own cultural, um, you know, to be able to accept that. Those are things that are extremely important in order for a person to um, rise out of, uh, out of that poverty situation because land is land. Cherry Creek land is no better than land in Montbello. Believe it or not. You know, whatever any individual wants to throw that out to you. But it's the individuals there. What are they being taught? What are they being taught about themselves, right? How am I supposed to look at myself when I look into the mirror? Where's that self-pride that I have? What's the history that I know? That's what's important. And we have to allow individuals to learn that about themselves and to be educated in those areas so that they can rise. But I want to draw a connection to what you'd said previously, which is at least my experience in Liberty City was that so much of it was bound up in being a great football player. That was the path to some sense of power in the world, which is hugely important when you feel essentially powerless. You become what you see on TV and what you see as successful. That's what you want to become. That's not, I mean, I don't know if there's any psychology individuals out here, but it's pretty simple, right? Like, I want to become this. You know, some people, I want to look like Superman because Superman is this and he's one of my heroes. And he's strong and, he's and strong. powerful in the world. Right? I look like him. So, I mean, but, but it, it, seriously, I mean, when you think of primetime television, a lot of times the only time you see maybe an African-American or something like that Correct. is in a sports arena. So, therefore, it's like right. that's success. Right. I want to be that. What do I have to do to be that? Right. And that's what you do. So, I ask a whole bunch of very uncomfortable questions. And, uh, in the book, and one of them is precisely that. Why? When, yeah, sorry. Go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's my girlfriend, by the way. She's awesome. Can we get her a seat, please? Can we? She's been in the back so patient. Can, can somebody please help her find a seat, if, you, if she may, please? You, you know what? You just want to stand. All right, girl. <laughs> Strong legs, I'll tell you that. Yep. So do I. And I'm with you. 205, you, you miss kickoff. 205, you miss kickoff. You know, it, it is a violent sport. Yeah. I don't know if I could ride it here. And it's kind of like, it's like watching war vicariously, in a sense, even though we hope nobody gets hurt. No. 
so is the language, right? Possession, all that, you know, a lot of a war. Territory, yeah. You do what you have to do to win. I'm, I'm not. I don't have to sit on it and deal with it. I'm. This is what I sign up for. This is the way I'm going to feed my family, get my education, or become known in your household. I have to do what I have to do in, in your community. This is what I have to do to win. So, if you take that mindset, that is the mindset I think really of of American business. That is the mindset of capitalism, frankly, and I'm not trying to throw, you know, I've got my French sailor suit, so you're going to hear that. <laughs> but that's really, it, it's a kind of a moral system. It essentially says, look, what, you're, what matters is who has the most power and who is dominant and who's the winner. America's a, a culture that's about I think worshiping greatness and admiring greatness, and there's a lot of that in football that's beautiful. It is an amazing, beautiful thing to see a player find in the ruin of dangerous bodies a tiny aperture to the end zone and to be able to execute it and make the miracle with his body where he can cut and break through that and it's nothing between him and the end zone but 50 yards of green grass and glory. That's gorgeous. That's why we watch. That's one of the reasons we watch. And there's nothing, I'm not assailing that. But it's also true that you are bound up when you're a big sports fan, even as I am, in a, in a zero-sum game, a philosophy that says if you win, you're a winner, and, nobody, and if you lose, you're a loser. And that's actually, I don't think that's a very Christian way to look at the world, because Christ was a loser. And he, and, and and he was concerned about ministering to people who were iniquitous. Yeah. He wasn't sitting there saying, how can I become a part of the power structure? He was saying, the power structure is corrupt. You cannot change money in the temple. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's an inherent contradiction between what we think of as sort of the Christian ethos of this country and generosity and so forth and where the rubber meets the road in our worship of sports and of big winners, of people who are the winners, the 1%. It's connected to this conversation about to what extent do we take stock of our own circumstance, our own privilege, our own entitlement, and say that we have a moral responsibility to the people who have less than us? Right. Right. And I, I, that will be in anything. But I will say, and, and I know we have so many other questions, but I will say one thing that I'm always reminded, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and sound mind. And one thing is of self-discipline. And to see an individual out there on the field, and this is one thing that I've learned, with self discipline like I have the discipline to take these steps or the discipline to do what I have to do or the discipline to, to exert all this energy and yet be in kind of a world weird calmness right like we don't like the individual who smashes somebody's face and then after the whistle continues to bash the player in right like there is this interesting of I need to exert my force whistle blows and I'm back control. in this in this control controlled aggression yeah, yeah. and th th that's what's so gratifying for me as a fan was that my household that I grew up in where there's a lot of uncontrolled aggression and when I saw football, I thought, oh, here's a context where it's being controlled and channeled. And it's not negative and anarchic. It's a path to a certain kind of heroism, right? Okay, sorry, let's get questions. Yep. 
which I played in high school, thank you. He was All-American. No, no. crack at that? Yeah, man. Uh, I, I, I actually do think that our worship of athletics and especially of violent athletics um, causes us to, we, we buy into a whole system of values, largely unconsciously. Um, and I, I would say this, if you look at a country like Finland, they have the best educational system in the world and they are the least um, they have the least participation in youth sports. Okay. L let me also turn it around and say that if you think about um, what, how football represents America, for an industrialized country, we are the most, and this is absolutely directly related to what's happening uh, you know, uh, around Ferguson and Eric Arn, we are the most militarized, gun-owning, incarcerating industrialized country on earth there is a connection between the violence that we seek out in athletics and especially football which is five times more popular and profitable than any other american sport and the part of the american spirit that consents to very high rates of gun ownership a popular culture that is completely overrun with violent imagery okay just Turn on any football game and you will see ads for video games where you're like, oh my God, this is like a pornography of violence. And all of that, I think, is feeding into, a, into our minds in a way that isn't always conscious. Look at the way that those cops who were surrounding Garner might have been thinking about him and his, quote-unquote, superhuman strength. Think about the way that that cop talked about Michael Brown as if an unarmed teenager who did not have police training was so omnipotent and powerful that he had to shoot him 10 times. Yep. Called him the Hulk or something like that, I believe. Right. And, and a devil, but we won't go there. So the, the point I'm making is that, that I think when we absorb images over and over again, certain things form in our minds, consciously or unconsciously, and they play out in the culture at large. We would like to believe that they're unrelated, but the way that we view, for instance, veterans is exactly the way that we view football players. When they're young and heroic and they're uh, defending the homeland, we love them, we'll clap for them in airports and so forth, but when they come back psychologically or physically disfigured, from combat or from being overseas, we are not so concerned in the same way that we really, when we don't see a football player, we don't really think about, like, w I wonder how Daryl Talley's doing, or Junior Seau, or Dave Durson, or Mike Webster. Jim Kelly, or, or, right. or any other individuals that we just don't know of, or the mental makeup of an individual who, like myself, even though I knew I made the right decision to leave and to play football, I still remember walking into Dan Hawkins' office and asking, a month later, can I be back on the team, and being totally crushed when he said no. I still, I mean, I still sends me chills thinking about it because there's so much wrapped up into it. But I will go one more point on your, on militarization is that 
I don't know anyone who walks into their job and before you perform or before you clock in, you have to have the national anthem being played or having airplanes flown, flown over. So, I mean, and that's just not in football, right? That's in every sport. And that's just not in America. If you look at, you know, other areas, it's this, we play hockey in Finland, got to play our national anthem, right? So it's, it's something very interesting about that, right? Like it's football is kind of going outside of culture, but we bring it into the, it's who you are and it's all right and it's what we stand up for. With the Olympics, you're no longer just running for your home. You know, you're no longer running for your neighborhood. You're running from your homeland. You know, I mean, things like that. Yep. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and really not a lot of times. I didn't realize how much money football really was, especially big business football, until after I walked away from the game. And I look back and I'm like, they have radio stations that dedicate time to this? Like, you, like you, you knew about it, but you really didn't know about it, right? Like, um, I'll never forget the first moment of running, I mean, after running behind Ralphie. It's 04, we're playing against CSU. And you look into the stands, and it's like, oh my God, all these people are here to see us. Which which is now one of the reasons why I used to, before I played college ball, I used to have like lucky, like everything, right? Like the Broncos are going to win if I have this lucky mug or if I have my lucky socks. And then I got to a point where I'm like, if I do my job or if I don't do my job, Whatever this other person, whatever whatever lucky thing this guy is wearing has nothing to do with if I do my job or if I don't do my job. I don't even know you, right? Like, we can all hope, you know, hold some Papa John's and hope Peyton Manning throw a touchdown. He doesn't know, right? So I never really knew that until after the game. Yeah, you were, you were a kid. You were 18 or 19. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I stopped playing when I was 21. and But it's what I knew. It's what I grew up with. It's my sense of entitlement. I go back into my neighborhood, even till this day, and it's like, Justin Adams, he played at CU. Look at this guy right here. I mean, I wear the ring and everything, and it, it helps start conversation. There, there is a sense of pride that I do take from that, and rightfully so. You know, it's a lot of hard work that I did put in, a lot of blessed winters that I did put into that. Um, but that is the kind of sense of entitlement that you have, so. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry. So, if, if you no longer watch uh, football on TV, yep. do you allow yourself to talk about it with your friends, or I'm actually going to I am him after the you know the game. <laughs> Peyton scored. Well, so um, you you can't be the person who says because here's the thing: football is important to us because we make it important to us. It is not actually a part of our educational system. It can instill wonderful values and discipline, and all that, but it's not actually a classroom. It's a sport. It's a form of entertainment, a brilliant, strategic, thrilling spectacle, but it's not a classroom. And it's not a business that we need in the same way that we need teachers or social workers or pastors, right? It's not a necessity. It's an entertainment. It's a form of entertainment. And that means that ultimately the football industrial complex, everybody's complaining about Ray Rice or Adrian Peterson or Roger Goodell or any of it, 
hey, you're sponsoring it. If you don't like the values that it represents, then you have a real clear choice. And Roger Goodell doesn't care whether you're anguished about watching the Broncos, trust me. You're helping to pay his salary if you're tuning in. And that's especially true of football because so much of the revenue is derived from broadcast rights. So when I realized that, that that was really the thing, then it was like, you know what? I just feel that this is so wrong on so many different levels as much as I love the game. I mean, another way of describing against football is that it's a book about trying to walk away from something you deeply love. That's what it is. But once you realize that we are sponsors as fans, then the decision is pretty clear. You can... For me, it was anyway, and it's not for other people. My hope with the book is not that there's like a boycott, but just that people will be in a state of struggle and see football for everything it is, the thrilling spectacle that it is and the moral undertaking with all of the values that um, are, I think, being endorsed and legitimized and even fostered by it. But for me, it was like, you know what? I cannot be the guy who writes against football and keep watching it. I had to write a whole book to outlaw it for myself. And now it's pretty clear. But I still feel like I can talk about it because I wrote a book about it. So I want to sort of know that Alabama-Birmingham just stopped their football program. Because that's important. It's relevant. It says something about all those college programs that aren't big winners and what it costs for the other students there to support a football team. You see what I mean? So I have to know about it somewhat. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing people don't. When you play the game, though, that's there's something so special about it that honestly may never be reduplicated in life. And, and also, I miss it. And my friend Sean, who played not for a long time, but you know, was understands the game even more and has that primal <laughs> attachment to it. He's never going to stop, and that's fine for him. That's his choice to make. Life's hard and stressful. And people need something that gives them pleasure and relaxation and enjoyment and everything else. It's not my job to shit on it. It's just my job, or I'm trying with this book, to say, well, okay, but what else? In what ways is football symptomatic of other American pathologies that we can all agree are really troubling? Right. Well, we, well, we got a couple yep. of hands. Oh, yeah. Well, b boxing became less accessible, less easily accessible. I mean, I, I wasn't around, obviously, in the, the 70s, but I would imagine that ABC, Wide World of Sports, you didn't have to pay a charge to watch a game, a boxing match. It was the spectacle of the day. You know, now you have to pay $59 to see Mayweather, like, fight, dance around for 12 rounds and smile, and he wins. Makes no sense. But, um, so... For me personally, as a guy who I feel like I'm a defendant of football, I just love the game and I love what it has done. And I understand the strategy, the beauty of the game. I do also understand the dangers of the game. But there are also dangers in other things, too. There's also dangers in walking outside the door. There's also dangers of starting up your car and driving away from here. We're not going to stop that. We're not going to say, ooh, this person got to an accident. 
I have to stop driving. Or, ooh, there's a plane crash, I have to stop flying. So that's a personal conviction that you make. And, that's, and understand that you have the purchasing power um, within anything you do. If you don't want to watch football then anymore, that's your personal conviction. That's fine. You know, like Steve, he, we won't watch football anymore. That's great. Me personally, I know the ACC championship game is on right now, and I'll be at home watching it in a little bit, you know? But, but, we but, gotta wind this up, man. Right, we gotta wind this up. You know? like, we gotta, just come on, Steve, it's the first quarter. But no, but, but in all seriousness, it's, it's always a personal conviction in everything you do, and you are never powerless in any decision you make. I would love for you to watch Seven News every day of your life and to keep it on, right? But you make a choice to turn on the television to keep it on that channel. Understand that that's what you have. You are never powerless, so. He's yep, good. Yep, 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 yep. Brother, in the red, I see you. How you doing? <laughs> yeah. As far as a lot of things, he says if he wasn't 6'7 and whatever pounds would you take him into your home? You know, if you didn't have certain skills and you didn't have this, would you get hired as a CEO? So I figure um, on a lot of different planes, it's kind of a it is what it is, realistic perspective. You know, I do what I'm good at. I do what I'm gonna, what I know I have the skills to do. So therefore, I, I just kind of feel like um, that was a great, great point. I wonder kind of But but you've got that a little bit backwards because what it is is if people start watching Badman, then the advertisers will say right right. Just on the point of boxing, what happened with boxing, it's true that it was became pay-per-view and mismanaged and corrupt and so forth, but actually the reason that Americans didn't stop watching boxing, but not so many of them watched it, it was the biggest sport, did partly have to do with a little moral awakening where enough people said, I don't feel comfortable watching two men really brutalize one another. And so it's by way of saying that part of the intention of writing against football was to say, America's actually capable of moral progress, but it's inconvenient, and it's disruptive, and it's always partial. Half the people in this room wouldn't be voting, okay, if America wasn't capable of making moral progress. But it means that people have to be fully cognizant and you know, Jessica could read the book and say, I read it all, I understand what you're saying, but I love this thing, and I'm not ready to turn my back on it. And that's his decision to make. It's that people need to be fully cognizant of everything the game is. And then they should make whatever, your husband should make whatever decision he needs to make. That's America. You know, we don't determine that. I love the changes that you make to make the game safer. Don't play on Thursday. Don't lie to me. Don't lie to me saying you're going to make the game on Thursday and then say, I'm going to give you four days of rest while you're not fully healed. Don't lie to me. I have a much longer answer to that, which is in the book, which is no. You cannot undo physics and physiology, but okay. Uh, one more. What, guys, we'll, I will stay here. He will go watch a football game, but yeah. We got we to wind it up here. Yeah, On my phone, actually. Right, exactly. It's amazing. Yep.
watching whatever the big game was on Sunday with a group of straight men. Wow. Because all those male interactions were passable, and there was no suspect from one to the other. Now, I was at the disco party on Saturday night with all the gay guys, so I knew who was gay in the crowd. Like, there's something great that can happen there. And then I started thinking about it, the, that these men are interacting with each other, and it's, there's a, an opportunity there. And then all these white men in this room are watching these black men on TV, and they love them. Yeah. So we got to stop really soon, but we'll respond to that and then, yeah. And then we'll stop. Yeah, yeah. If, if you don't, if you are a person who needs money and you don't want to be looked at in a bad light in order to make that money, it will stop you from making a lot, from saying a lot of different things. So a lot of people have debt, like, again, in college, right? trillion worth of debt, student loan debt alone, right? So you are, in a sense, held a slave to that debt. You may work a job you don't like. You have to have something in order to pay that debt down. But let's reverse it. If you have $100,000 in the bank and somebody says something crazy or you get offended or something like that, it's a lot easier to say, to stand up, in a sense, for social justice. It's a lot easier to say something um, and put your heart out there and put your reputation out there, your name out there, when you have that financial security. Hmm? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. One quick thing to remember about the NFL, they're not a social justice organization. Okay? <laughs> they're a $10 billion a year corporation that's tax exempt, right? Yeah, we're not even going to go there because there's a whole chapter in the book about not only are they nonprofit, but they're a legalized monopoly and so forth that's continually extorting cities to, right? So. USFL. So, um, it, in in one one little section of the book, I fantasize about what it would be like if the N- if the NFL were truly uh, Marxist, and it is a beautiful vision. What would happen is the teams would all be owned by the cities and states that they're in, and all green. Well, right, and and all the billions of dollars that were generated would go back into those cities and and economically disadvantaged communities and hiring more teachers and more support for working families. That's a beautiful thing, but you have to be honest about what the NFL is. All that money, or the lion's share of it, is not going to the players. That's peanuts, what JT Watts is making. It's going yeah. to the owners. Yeah. $10 billion. Yeah. Suddenly, $18 million a year doesn't sound so great when you know that the owners are collecting 100 times as much. So you have to be realistic. It's not a social justice organization. It's a big corporation. And expecting it to change because it just, the good, out of the goodness of his heart, it's like expecting a cash register to sing your kid a lullaby. It's never going to happen. Right? Which would be awesome, by the way. <laughs> All right, we're going to stop. Thanks, you guys.
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.